Welcome to Inside Track, brought to you by Chiltern Railways. I'm Emma Gascoigne, and like you, I travel by train a lot. And as I go about my business, I often wonder how it all works. So I went out on the Chiltern network to find out some of the burning questions that other rail users have. I would like to know how the trains are shuffled around the network. How does that happen? Why do certain train journeys always have to be more expensive? Over the next six episodes, we'll be discussing these questions with the people behind the scenes at Chiltern Railways and getting the inside track on a number of topics such as infrastructure, engineering, ticketing, improvements and working in the railway. Today we're answering your questions about operations and we're also getting the inside track on Network Rail from their very own Head of Performance and Customer Relationships. We're the hidden face of, of the railway really. In the studio now we're joined by the Managing Director of Chiltern Railways, Dave Penny, and the Customer Services Director, Alan Riley. Thank you for both joining us on Inside Track. Hi Emma, morning Emma. Some may say it's brave to do a podcast. Dave Penny, why are you doing this? Anything that we can do to kind of break down the barriers and the mystique around what the railway is, um, why it causes delays sometimes, why it runs the way it does, I think is a really positive thing. So I hope that people find this really useful. I'd love you to kind of contribute and and ask for other topics you'd like us to cover um, so that we can just effectively open up Chiltern Railways to our customers um, and, and really get a good understanding. You've been MD of Chiltern Railways for three years. What's been your proudest achievement? I think it has to be when we opened our new route through to Oxford. So that's the first mainline railway in 100 years, the culmination of a lot of hard work from Chiltern Railways and Network Rail um, to build that line. And I'm really proud of the fact that not only did it open on time, but it's been an outstanding success. Our customers really love the service. People often say that Chiltern Railways is not like a, a normal train operating company. Why is that? Well, I think it's got a great track record, if you'll pardon the pun, that that everybody who works for Chiltern and all the customers who live on the route can be proud of. Chiltern Railways has been in existence since railway was privatised in 1994, and it's had a continuous involvement in improving the service on the Chiltern route ever since. And that's included investing in new trains, more tracks that you can run more trains, new stations, new platforms. So it's had that kind of transformation story that hasn't necessarily happened across all of the country. It's always had very good customer satisfaction and also good performance levels. So again, people come to trust what Chilton is and what it means to them. But it's also worth worth noting, of course, that Chilton, like all of the train operating companies in, in the UK, is only here for a specific period of time. The way in which the government runs passenger operations is to let franchises. So the government will specify the contract and what they'd like to see delivered within the period of the contract, and then companies can bid to run it. But what that does then mean is that 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 company only exists for the period of the franchise. And what I think all companies need to make sure they do is have a sustainability throughout the whole of the railway beyond the franchise. One of the things that I've been quite keen to do is to continue thinking about the future beyond the end of the current Chilton franchise, whether it be to look at enhancements we need to carry on doing to our stations, increasing platform lengths, putting in more car parks, introducing new types of train. So there's a lot that Chilton can do to kind of carry on that legacy beyond the end of the franchise and and, and long may it continue. Dave, what made you decide to work in the railways? I'm probably um, quite fortunate, I think that might be the word, in in actually working in the industry that that I love. I've always wanted to to work for the railways. I find myself really lucky 
not only to be leading such a great company, but also working in the industry that I love. When you're not revolutionising the rail industry, what do you do for downtime? I'm firmly put in my place by my six-year-old boy who insists on being a playmate to him. Does he make you play with with trains? Yes, I don't know where he's managed to get that from, but he's got his wooden track set that he needs uh, upstairs and I have to make him run it properly, make sure it stops at every station and leaves on time. (laughs) I'm sure you enjoy that. And Alan Riley, you're going to be with us for all six episodes. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about all the episodes and uh, yeah, really pleased that we've got Dave on for the first one. And when you're not looking after customers and starring in podcasts as well, what do you like doing? My newly found love at the minute is going to the theatre. Um, so only this weekend I went to see Mamma Mia. So uh, I'd recommend to any listeners that uh, may be a bit sceptical about that. It, it's an amazing show. What's been your favourite moment since working at Chiltern Railways? I think I get a lot of little favourite moments. And it's uh, we do a lot of meet the manager sessions when we talk to customers. And, and it's when we get some positive feedback there and some validation from our customers that we're doing the right things and we're meeting their needs, that, that's the sense of pride I get. So every time we get that feedback, um, that kind of gives a spring in my step and that, that makes my day. I think we're ready to get our first question. And remember, these questions came from you when I was live at stations on the Chiltern route. Why do different trains have different amounts of carriages? Is it reflective of the route or the people buying the tickets or is it just random? So that was a question from a customer at Haddenham and Tame Parkway. So, Dave, is it random? I'd like to think not. What we do is we have to match uh, capacity to the demand on the route. And the thing we have to remember, actually, is that there's not one single demand or pattern of travel. So we essentially have four routes, which is the Metropolitan Line up to Aylesbury, what we call the Heartlands Line up to Bicester, and then we have our Oxford service and our Birmingham service. And each of them has a slightly different need. As you might expect, the Met has a high commuter need in the peaks, so we run types of trains that best provide as many seats as possible for that short journey. Whereas on the Oxford and Birmingham lines, we run a more of an intercity style operation. So again, we try to provide a more relaxed two plus two seating uh, operation with our trains on that route. And what we do is we look at how many people travel on every train every day, how that differs Monday to Friday, how it differs on Saturdays and Sundays. And then we actually plan the types of trains that we're going to operate based on the demands of the network and how many people want to travel. I think uh, the thing to say really is that we push as many trains into traffic as is possible to satisfy that need, but it does mean that the service can be subject to uh, disruptions if there are problems with uh, train maintenance. Um, And one of the things I'm not happy about at the moment and need to apologise for uh, on behalf of Chilton really is that there have been service disruptions over the last four or five months where actually a higher than usual number of trains of needed maintenance and because we finally balance how many trains get used every day as soon as one extra train is stopped for maintenance that is not out in traffic and that means someone stood say at Beaconsfield or Haddenham might see a train that turns up with four carriages instead of five. That's not great that's not where we need to be and we're working as hard as possible to fix that. Alan is there anything you wanted to add on that? Yeah, I agree with Dave, really. I think where we are at the moment isn't what we have a reputation for. When I talk to customers, I've had that feedback that on certain days, it's not been as comfortable a journey as they've come to expect from us. So I think the the two real bits there are, A, what is really clear, that has become the number one priority of the business, actually making that right. Uh, And we have a very detailed plan 
that should get to a much better place than we're currently offering. That, that certainly does sound complex. Are, are you doing anything to get new trains? Or It is something we look at all the time. The last time we were able to obtain new trains was for the Oxford opening in 2016. And we've seen growth rates increasing ever since, so we know that trains are becoming more overcrowded. The, the difficulty is that, and this is something that is almost unique for the rail industry in terms of we're not a company that is here for the next 20 or 30 years. We have two years left to go in our franchise before we would then uh, effectively have the DFT refranchise and go to competition again. And when you actually start to look for rolling stock, which is provided by leasing companies, they look for the longest term lease they can to get the best return on on their investment. So when you're looking for a, a new train for only two years, you're not necessarily given as much priority as someone who might be coming along with seven or ten years to go. That, that's really frustrating, but it, it doesn't mean that we set, we lie down and, and take it. We've had quite a number of opportunities to obtain single vehicles here and there, and that's the kind of thing that we carry on working to do. But I think we just have to acknowledge that in the next two years there won't be a wholesale um, introduction of, of large new train fleets. On to our next question. I would like to know how the trains are shuffled around the network. So when I'm commuting, if a driver misses one train or there's a delay somewhere, why that causes such a domino effect on everything else and why it takes so long to get everything back into place. Another great question from a customer at Haddon Montaigne Parkway. It must be really complicated and something I'm sure many of us take for granted. How do you do it? So we use diesel trains. So they have to be refuelled every night. So they have to start their day at a maintenance depot that has fuelling facilities, of which there are only ones at Wembley, Aylesbury, Banbury and Stourbridge. So that's where our trains start. But then we also have to have the right drivers for those trains. And as you would expect, there are driver depots at each of those four main locations. But we also have an additional driver depot at Birmingham and at uh, London Marylebone. So every day you've got to make sure that both trains and drivers are in the right place. If there are no delays in the service then everything works nicely and the train and the driver arrives at Marylebone and can be relieved by the next driver and, and on we go again. But if there is a delay then what control have to do is start thinking in advance about how they can minimise the delay right now and get the service going as quickly as possible how we make sure we serve all of our stations equally after that disruption. It, it doesn't help anyone if, if we don't serve Haddenham for two hours after a disruption. And then, of course, where are all the trains and drivers going to be after that disruption and how long can we use them for the rest of the day? So what you don't want to do is find that actually a delay that occurred at 10 o'clock in the morning, we recover from it, and then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon there are no drivers for the evening peak service out of Marylebone or that a diesel train runs out of fuel on the approach to Bicester at 7 o'clock at night. So all of those things need to be taken into account when we recover from a delay. And Alan, what kind of things do you have to do in, in, in your role to plan for things like this? I think the bit for me really is about how we communicate to customers. And I think this is the bit we're getting a lot closer on is... You know, how do we get the most relevant information to each customer that gives them detail about really what's next? So often, uh, historically as an industry, what we've been really, we've not been great at giving kind of very detailed information, making it very simple and allowing someone to make a decision on it. What we've often done really is just give a bit of a benchmark if it might be an hour, it might be two, and it's not been that clear. So, so our current real focus is actually how do you make sure down the chain of many complex decisions being made, how do we simplify that at the end point so our customer can make a decision on what they should do next? We're going to go to our next question now, and this one's from Moore Street. 
It's probably the nerd in me, but the thing that I've always thought of is how do they actually construct the timetable so that to minimise the chances of delays and just to harmonise all of the services. So Dave, how do you construct a timetable? Well, again, it's quite an interesting and complex subject. People might not know that we start with what the franchise commitment requires us to do. So there is a a specification for the base level of timetable that we must serve every station along the route and also what should be the maximum journey time between London and any of the key stations. But actually, we only see that as the kind of minimum acceptable condition. For the last 20 years, Chilton's been about improving the timetable, running more trains and running them faster so that we offer a better service for our customers. But we have to put a lot of things into the mix to get the timetable constructed. So the first is, how many tracks do we have? What speed can you run on them? How long does it take to get from point A to point B? Um, How many platforms are there at every station? How long is every platform? so that you can start to work out what type of train you can run, um, how quickly you can run them, how many trains an hour you can run. We're not the only operator on the network, so of course this work has to be done for us by Network Rail, and they have to balance out all of the other operators that also want to run a service. And you have to make sure that that's robust, that there is no point um, allowing each of the operators to run as many trains as is possible and then find that the the railway gets congested, uh, there are delays, um, and it doesn't work. So a lot of time is spent planning, replanning, modelling, rechecking how each part of the timetable actually works. On t- on top of actually the trains and, and the, the infrastructure, you've also uh, got to make sure you've got the right number of drivers to actually be able to run the service. How many do you need? Where do they need to be based? How many trains can they work up and down in a day? Um, before they're relieved. Also in terms of our stations, how many do you need people on the platforms to be able to help customers on and off the train but also allow the train to be dispatched safely and quickly and of course all of that has to happen before we then publish it in advance so that we can print our timetables, put the information on our websites and our app and then of course we have to monitor that religiously every day to make sure it's delivering properly, tweak it where it's not and make sure that it becomes something that our customers can depend on. You you want to be able to walk up to a station and not actually have to rely on whether the train will be there. It's It turns up on time, it turns up with the right number of carriages, it's warm, it's clean, and it gets you to your destination as quickly as possible. You forget that there's so much that goes on behind the scenes to give the customer the, the finished product. Alan, when there's things like events on, what impact does that have on the timetable? We often have to change the timetable for events, so we'll, we'll put more services that call at Wembley that's been historically very busy so we've had to alter our timetable for there and we've, we've took a, a kind of holistic view towards the timetable as well so you, you talk about the the background and what we're doing it's not all about constructing the timetable as um, as David showed to be very complex it's about how you make things easier at the station for our customers so for Marlborough is a real pinch point so we need to make sure that we've got trains into the station and out of the station as quickly as possible. Uh, and what we've done there in the past is we've introduced boarding areas. We've started to board more than one train on the platform at once. Uh, we found that there was a new market of customers heading towards Bista Village. So we had to introduce different announcements uh, that went out in Arabic and Mandarin. And we've even introduced staff now that spoke these languages because there was confusion. And in the end, that leads to kind of trains leaving the station late. So we try to do a lot of work in the background just to make sure there's a seamless information flow and products for the customer at that end so we can board trains. And that means we can get more trains into the station 
and make the Times Table more robust. We're going to play our next question now, and this was from a person who was travelling at the weekend from Marleybone. Uh, yeah, so our train is cancelled today because of a lack of train staff. Where do they all go? It's not unique to uh, this train. I've had it a few times before. So how does that happen? So Dave, where do they go? I mean, firstly, I'm really sorry that that's happened. I never accept that. And and we always try to work out how we can make sure it doesn't happen again. I suppose it relates to some of the complexity that we, we talked about earlier in terms of how many drivers you need to operate the timetable normally, but then also make sure that you have enough contingency for disruption. Of course, there has to be a sweet spot so that you look at the typical types of disruption you might have and the effect that that might have on where drivers uh, end up and and whether you therefore need spare drivers available at key locations to be able to step in if there is a delay. But of course what you can't do is have hundreds of drivers populating the whole of the network. You don't have a driver for every service? So no, what you would do, we run 440 services a day a typical daytime service would require around 150 drivers. So we then work on having a percentage of that 150 allocated as spare. Now, of course, then you've got to think about, well, OK, where are you going to put those spare drivers? So which locations commonly um, would need that spare driver and what time of day? So you have to balance those drivers across whether you want them at Marylebone, Aylesbury, Banbury, and getting that balance right is is critical. But even when you get that right, it doesn't necessarily mean that it works every time. So, for instance, uh, if a delay occurs at at 10 in the morning, um, you've got a high likelihood that a spare driver at Marylebone will still be available to work the return without delay. But if it occurs, say, maybe at 2 o'clock, just as you're getting into that change between the AM and the PM, you might have already sent a spare driver on an additional turn to Aylesbury, there's no one left to be able to work that service to to Banbury or Birmingham. You also, of course, have to remember that each driver's allocated to a depot and has to be able to return to that depot. And they also have to learn how to drive each type of train individually and also learn each type of route individually. So you might actually have a train to Aylesbury that requires a driver, but the only spare driver at Marylebone Um, only learns the route to Oxford or Birmingham. So we have to keep balancing these all the time to make sure that we've got the right level of resources in place. Uh, I'm pleased to say that the majority of the time we get it right. Our team are fantastic at going the extra mile when there is a delay. So if we say to people, can you stay a bit longer? Could you work this train? They all acknowledge how many customers are affected by that and are willing to do so. So I'm I'm really proud of that. But just occasionally, despite all the best will in the world, um, we're not able to cover the turn. Still to come, we have three more questions around the operations of the railway. And you won't want to miss this one. Can you stop a train needing more watermelons like Thomas the Tank and Bye. Very good. <laughs> but right now, we're going to listen to an interview with Network Rail. It's a delight to be here with Karen Hornby, Head of Performance and Customer Relationships at Network Rail, to find out more about how Network Rail operates and their plans for the future. Karen, firstly, what's it like working for Network Rail? So I must love working for Network Rail because I've been with the company now for over 25 years. I first started in 1994 when RailTrack was first introduced, uh, working with our freight customers. So I've always had a customer service background. I think the reason that I've stayed and love what I do so much is because I think we can make a difference. I love what we do to improve our customer experience. and We don't always get it right, 
but when we do we want to learn and improve and, and move things forward and I think I think we've done that and I think there's more to come so I think we've got some exciting times ahead that's why I stay because it's every every day's a challenge every day's different so you mentioned rail track so who's network rail and and how does it work with train operating companies like Chiltern Railways so Network Rail was established in 2002, before then it was Rail Track, which was established in 1994 and before then it was British Rail. So uh, privatisation happened in 1994 where Network Rail as it is now, Rail Track then, was introduced. Uh, Network Rail is responsible for the infrastructure and maintaining the infrastructure going forward. We're also responsible for stations, level crossings, signals and a number of stations on our network. Um, We work closely with Chiltern Railways around delivering day-to-day performance, improving performance, improving the customer experience, working together on stations. We can't do it alone. We have a really good relationship with Chiltern Railways. So for a Chiltern customer, how does Network Rail come into their journey? So I suppose we're the hidden face of, of the railway really for that journey because we maintain the tracks, we maintain the signals, the level crossings, the bridges. We keep the journey running, but actually you don't see us doing that, but we're working hard in the background. I suppose you also forget about all the interfaces as well so if there's freight running on the line and other operators you have to make sure that that all works and that's where timetabling and working as an industry comes into play and we have to make sure we work together and and get that bit right what challenges do you face there are a number of challenges i think there are two growing challenges that we face one is uh, the rising demand and also uh, climate change the difference in weather the extreme weather that we that we have Uh, Both have contributed to train reliability, I think uh, falling short of passengers' expectations in in recent years. I think, um, as I said before, passenger demand has doubled in the last 20 years um, and some of our infrastructure dates back to Victorian times. And at that time, it was never estimated to grow at this level. Over the next five years, from 2019, it's due to grow again by another 12%. So we must maintain service reliability while we're delivering a bigger railway so that we're able to carry more people and produce in the future. So we always say it's like building a Wembley Stadium while there's a game going on at the same time. It seems like it's an exciting time at Network Rail with the biggest investment since the Victorian era in the infrastructure. What difference is this going to all make to passengers? So uh, Network Rail is uh, changing how it operates. We're making routes more responsible to local needs. We're cutting through the red tape and bureaucracy. Um, Our new structure allows us to be more responsive to the needs of the train operator, to our passengers, customers and freight operators by bringing our people closer to those that that we serve. So that was an, an insight into Network Rail. Was there anything there that you wanted to expand on? I think Karen's picked up on some really good points around uh, the hidden face of Network Rail and the fact that they have to work in partnership with train operators to make this a success. If we don't work together in partnership, we're going to fail. They are absolutely crucial to to our, our network. We need to rely on the tracks and the signals working so that our trains can run every day so it's a it's a system Um, and of course all that matters at the end of that system is that a customer turns up value for money journey can rely on the journey and it's repeatable and robust every time i think it's a lot when you go to a restaurant and you don't really look into the kitchen and you don't see how your food's being prepared but when it comes out you expect it to taste good for me it's just complete one doesn't work without the other 
So it only works well for the customer if if we work well and network rail work well. One of the really interesting points as well is that that pressure to rebuild Wembley Stadium while the game's going on is that it's getting bigger and bigger. More and more people are using the railway all the time. Making sure that the infrastructure works is getting tougher and tougher. We want to run more trains. We want to start them earlier in the day, finish them later in the day. So the ability to do maintenance decreases. So we've got to get smarter. We've got to use technology, innovation, data to actually be doing more for less and actually get the railway. And it's not just infrastructure, it's our our stations and rolling stock too maintained in such a way that it can keep up with that growth demand. We're going to get the next question now and this one came from a gentleman at Aylesbury who was on his way to London. Okay it may seem a bit of a morbid question but it's something that's impacted my experience of rail travel. I just wondered um, how many times a year do, do people kill them? Do they throw themselves in front of a train, commit suicide? And you know, What is the long, long-term impact on the drivers who witness that and also the passengers? There's, there's a really big personal impact from, from a suicide incident, whether it be for the, you know, the person involved in their family, um, whether it be for any members of the Chiltern Railways team who have been you know, directly involved in it, um, and unfortunately sometimes whether our customers, customers have also been witness to it as well. So it, it's one of those kind of incidents that we have to treat really carefully and with the right respect uh, as, as well. But unfortunately it does seem to be an increasing uh, theme and in, in fact, actually, across the whole of the UK rail network, unfortunately, um, such an incident occurs almost every other day. So, of course, when it does occur, there is, there is going to be that impact uh, on the railway. Um, so we, we have, um, I think, quite well laid down guidelines about how to deal with the incident there and then to protect everybody involved and, and make sure that we really have a good chain of care uh, for everybody involved, but also return the railway to, to normal operation as quickly as is, is possible in that kind of difficult circumstance. But then, of course, we also work together, interestingly, again, with, with Network Rail, but also with outside partners such as Samaritans to kind of help reach out to people and make sure that we're, uh, in a way, intervening um, before they might take their own life. And I think that's something that, as a network, we've got to do better and more so that so that we can avoid these incidents in the first place. I was talking to a member of the team at Warwick, um, Dave, who works in the ticket office there, and only about a year ago he he stopped someone committing suicide. Yeah, he was alerted by a customer, and, and it was from his Samaritan's training that he knew how to intervene and what to do and what support to get. And, we, and we've also seen the same across different stations where interventions have been made. I think we can all help on this, and really even anyone listening there, you know, if, if we can talk. So if you ever see someone who's at stations who are looking down or, or looking kind of distant. One of the pieces of advice that we get from the Samaritans is actually opening a conversation and just talking to people. Uh, and, and that's one of the most kind of positive interventions you can make, is just starting that conversation. So it's so almost don't be afraid to do that. And don't be afraid to kind of alert a member of staff. So it, it is a really difficult topic. Mm. Um, and I think it's one we've really got to keep focused on because we, we can make a difference um, and it does impact a lot of lives. The next question is from Bambury. I'd like to know why the trains are always late. If we could send a probe, Voyager, from Earth to Neptune, 1.5 billion kilometres, and it arrived two seconds early, why are the trains late? Dave, how do you think your railway compares to space travel? Oh, well, I think it's quite an interesting comparison, but um, obviously one that I think is, is difficult to draw a, a parallel from. For me, really, it's about the success measures within the rail industry and what we do for our 17 million 
customers every year. And and actually, from a performance uh, measure, we deliver over 93% of our trains uh, on time. Now, that means arriving at your destination between naught and five minutes late. So some people might quite rightly say, well, hold on, there's still an element of lateness uh, in that measure. And we need to look at whether we can improve upon that, such as having a metric that either measures to three minutes or even what we would term as right time, so up to 59 seconds late. But we don't rest on our laurels. We look at that missing 7%, how we can address that, how we can improve on it, and how we can make sure that that's reliable and, and robust. And what we do find is that our customers are um, very quick to inform us if there are delays, and quite rightly so. But when we do deliver uh, 93%, that seems to work as a a good balanced medium uh, for everybody. Our final question is the one you've all been itching to hear. Can you stop a train using watermelons like Thomas the Tank Engine? Bye. Very good. So I bet you get asked this one all the time, especially in board meetings. I think that's a fantastic question. And it's just exactly the same as my young son would ask me as well. So I want to make sure that none of our trains cause confusion and delay, just as Sir Topham Hatt would say. Um, so it's interesting how a watermelon could stop a train. Um, we'd certainly be able to squash it. I've not actually watched the episode, unfortunately. I'm not sure whether one dropped down the funnel or something like that. So I'm just trying to think what... Thomas ones we've had that have a good measure, um, a good uh, correlation, actually. Do you think you could stop it with a watermelon? I don't know. I was trying to work out a fruit or vegetable that could stop a train if you had enough of them. Yeah. Obviously, you've got to be careful because of safety. Yeah, absolutely. So if we... if we, I, I don't think we could stop it. So I think we need to go back to him and tell him that. But so no, I don't think... But I think we need to find the episode first. I mean, do you get many questions like this about Thomas the Tank Engine? Y- yes, we do, actually. I mean, if you think about it, Thomas the Tank Engine is a great way of putting a personal face on to what the railway does for our, our customers and our communities. Uh, and if any young family comes up and wants to talk to us about trains, I'm more than happy to do so. Um, and probably I can bore them to tears about Thomas the Tank Engine on top of that as well. So... Um, Yeah, one of the things we have to make sure is that just like Henry, when he wouldn't come out in the rain, our trains can work in all sorts of weather as well. Yeah, I think think what I love is I just love the fact that kids love trains. Mm. And I think Thomas is a a big factor behind that. But I mean, historically, we've ran a a kid's um, train, a kid's coach, and it was pandemonium, but everybody loved it. Mm. Uh, Before that, we ran a a Santa Express, and um, that was with elves and Santa, and it was just full of kids from kind of local hospitals and we raffle tickets and it was amazing um so i just love the fact that kids love trains and uh, i think really we need to look at more of that and really how we get them how we get kids more engaged and traveling more with us that's it for this episode tune in next week to get the inside track on lost property and hear your questions about infrastructure remember you can let us know what you think about the program by tweeting at chilton railway or by leaving a review